Uh, turn with me to the 21st chapter of the book of Revelation, and let's begin reading with verse 9. One of the seven angels who had the seven bowls full of the seven last plagues came and spoke with me, saying, Come here, and I shall show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. And he carried me away in the Spirit to a great and high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, having the glory of God. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone as a stone of crystal clear jasper. It had a great and high wall with twelve gates, and at the gate twelve angels. And names were written on them, which are those of the twelve tribes of the sons of Israel. There are three gates on the east, and three gates on the north, and three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. And the wall of the city had twelve foundations, and on them were the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb. Now, this is the big picture of the heavenly city, which John sees from his vantage point from the top of a lofty mountain. He was taken in a vision to the top of the mountain, and from that mountain he sees this city as a whole. Much as you uh, first uh, view the city of Boise as you come down out of the uh, Owyhees, or as you first see the city of Seattle uh, as you cross Lake Washington. The, um, the representation of the city here is symbolic. We need to keep that in mind. I do not for myself see this as a literal description of a city. It's rather a description of the people of God symbolized as a city. The uh, city here is called the Bride of Christ, and throughout the book of Revelation, that's been the description given of the church. So I see this not as a uh, building, but as a symbol of a community of people represented as a city. Now, it's interesting to me in the first place that uh, heaven, or the exalted eternal state of the church, is described here as a city and as a perfect city because somehow that meets the uh, longing of our hearts for a community where there is both proximity and community, where we're close together and yet there is togetherness. Man's cities are not like that. There's a lot of proximity. We're very close together, but there's very little togetherness. It reminds me of the feeling you get in an elevator when uh, you're standing right next to someone, but uh, you feel very awkward and self-conscious, and you look out through the grill and wind your watch and clear your throat and uh, hardly know how to uh, deport yourself. And I think that's somewhat the city that, uh, a feeling that we get in Man City. I'll never forget once while I was in the service uh, having to lay over in, in uh, Chicago at Dearborn Station and going out on the streets in the middle of the night, and the streets were thronging with people, but I was a long way from home, and that was the coldest, loneliest place I've ever been in my entire life. I still get this uh, kind of heavy feeling when I think of that, uh, of that particular time. And that's the problem with man's cities. They're lonely, cold places. But God's city is a community of love and warmth and acceptance, as we'll see. Now, we're not only told that it's a community. There's a description given of its beauty. Her brilliance was like a very costly stone, as a stone of crystal clear jasper. Our uh, jasper was their diamond. Actually, this is the word for diamond in Greek. And uh, it, uh, the picture that it invokes is that of a great diamond with light reflecting off of its facets. It's a beautiful, beautiful city. Again, in contrast with man's city, which are noted for their ugliness. When you think of uh, cities like New York and Los Angeles and other places, they, they're just downright ugly. And despite our attempts at urban renewal, we never quite change the face of the city because the heart of the city is wrong. The city's dead. There's something wrong with it. But this is a city that has, uh, has great beauty. And thirdly, we're told that it had a great and high wall. 
in John's day, a wall was necessarily necessary for defense. In those days of primitive warfare, a wall was sufficient to keep people out. Most uh, Semitic uh, specialists tell us that the word for city in Hebrew ear means a cry of alarm. When uh, the enemy attacked, the trumpet would sound, a cry of alarm would go out, people would flee into the city, the gates would be shut and barred, and uh, one would be safe there. And this seems to be the picture here. There's a great high wall, 75 yards high, and uh, it protects the inhabitants of the, uh, of the city. But it has gates. The wall is pierced at 12 points by gates, and over the gates the names of the 12 tribes of Israel. And as we've seen throughout the book of Revelation, wherever the 12 tribes of Israel occur, that's a, a symbolic description of the people of God, not only the literal 12 tribes, the Jews of the Old Testament, but what Paul calls the Israel of God in the book of Galatians, those who are Jews inwardly, uh, those who have, have acknowledged Jesus Christ, acknowledged Jesus as Messiah, uh, as Messiah. They are the Israel of God, and the name of the 12 tribes written on the gate signifies access on the part of the people of God into the city. It's a place to flee from refuge, a great cosmic city of refuge. When you're under attack, when things are going wrong, when you're stressed more than, than you can bear, you can run into the, the city. And that's the picture. And then in verse 14, the wall of the city had 12 foundations, and on them were the 12 names of the 12 apostles of the Lamb. By 12 foundations, he means uh, tiered foundations, one foundation laid upon another and on the foundations the names of the twelve apostles. That's a symbolic uh, representation of Paul's statement in Ephesians 2.20. The church is built upon the foundation of the apostles and the prophets. The teaching that we have in Scripture in the New Testament is the teaching of the apostles, and the church is built upon this teaching. That's the only foundation the church has. Paul warns us against building a foundation, uh, building the church on any other foundation. It's the teaching of the apostles about Jesus Christ. And I suppose you can call your group anything you want to, but you can't call it a church or the church unless it's built upon the foundation that the apostles laid, that is, the teaching, uh, the apostolic teaching in the New Testament. And then in verses 15 through 17, John records for us the measurement of the city. First, we get the broad picture, and we see it's, uh, that it's a great community with beauty and security and uh, their stability because it's laid upon this solid foundation. And then uh, it's measured in verses 15 through 17. And the one who spoke with me had a gold measuring rod to measure the city and its gates and its wall. And the city is laid out as a square, uh, actually as a cube. Its length is as great as the width, and he measured the city with the rod 1,500 miles. Its length and width and height are equal. And he measured its wall 72 yards according to human measurements, which are also angelic measurements. In other words, the angel simply used human measurements to uh, uh, convey the, the size of the city. The uh, Greek unit of measurement is the stadium. A stadium was about 600 feet, and there are 12,000 of these on a side. The uh, figure is symbolic. Twelve is the number of the people of God. Uh, One thousand is ten reduplicated. Ten is the number of completeness. Ten times ten times ten means uh, absolute, uh, it's totality. So this is the totality of the people of God. Translated into, into our units of thought, it's 1,500 miles on a side and in height. Now, if you put yourself in John's place and you stand by the wall 
and you see this wall receding off into the distance and off into the sky, you get some idea of how staggering this must have been. 1,500 miles. If you place this city on, on the United States, it would reach from the Canadian border to the Mexican border and halfway across the United States, from here to uh, Minneapolis, Minnesota. And 1,500 miles into space. Everest is 29,000 feet. That's five and a half miles, approximately. This is 1,500 miles. Bob Dealey did some calculations this morning and assuming that, that you allow one billion cubic feet for every person, you could put 500 billion people into this city. That's a lot of folks. And uh, you see what, uh, what, what uh, is intended by this figure, an immense population. There are a lot of people there. Earlier in the book, in John 7, we're told that there is an innumerable host gathered around the throne from every tribe, every tongue, red and yellow, black and white, an innumerable number of people, a great horde, a vast multitude of people uh, housed in this, uh, in this city. And then we're told something of the materials of the city in verses 18 and following. And the building material of the wall was jasper. That would be diamond again. The, city, the, the wall was built out of large uh, diamond blocks. And uh, the Romans were given to a monumental uh, structure, great uh, granite blocks, some of them 15, 18 feet long. So this would be a rather large diamond. And the city was pure gold, like clear glass. That is, uh, it reflected the light of God. Uh, there was no distortion like uh, clear glass. The foundation of the city was adorned with every kind of precious stone. We really need uh, Lloyd and Dixie Douglas here to uh, tell us what these stones are and what they look like. But some of the stones were jasper and his diamond. Some were sapphire, lovely uh, blue color. Chalcedony, which is uh, kind of greenish, uh, has a greenish appearance. Emeralds, as you know, are green, and so forth. The, the picture is one of uh, incredible beauty. And the twelve gates were twelve pearls, and each one of the gates a single pearl. He's not saying that the gates are inlaid with pearl. Each gate was a single pearl. Uh, how would you like to uh, meet the oyster that uh, produced that one? I think I'd uh, not wade too far out from the beach. Pearls were, uh, were very costly. You know, Jesus' parable of the man who sold everything he had to buy one, one pearl. Well, here is a, an enormous pearl forming the, the gate of the city. One of the gates, one of the twelve gates. And the street of the city was pure gold, like transparent glass. Not a ribbon of gold, we think in terms of the way we lay uh, asphalt. But in those days, they built streets out of bricks. These would be gold bricks. Can you imagine someone coming to the gate, encountering the angel? The angel says, uh, what, uh, what is your merit, the merit on which you base your right to enter the city? And someone says, well, uh, my net worth is about a million dollars. And the angel says, you see that little bitty rock right in there, underneath your foot? 
uh, can I have that rock? And he hands it to him and he hefts it and he says, well, that weighs about 20 pounds. In today's market, that rock is worth about $1.2 million. And you look around and all the streets are paved out of gold. Angel says, that's what we build our streets out of up here. Wouldn't you feel a little silly describing your net worth in terms of 20 pounds of asphalt? And you see, that's, that's, that's the point. That's what he's trying to get across. What do we, if, we, if we think that money somehow is going to make us feel worthwhile, we really have a false sense of value. It doesn't mean anything. We literally cannot take it with us. You've heard the story, I'm sure, about the man who was buried in his gold Cadillac and his, he's being lowered in the ground. One of the, uh, one of the people at the funeral said, Man, that's living. But uh, it's not. It doesn't amount to anything. Why spend your whole life amassing gold when it, it doesn't amount to anything? Now, I think the beauty and the worth, the appearance of the city is symbolic of the glory of the character of the people of God who inhabit the city. Paul says, I reckon that the sufferings of this world are not worthy to be compared with the glory that shall be revealed in us. It's, it's character that makes us feel worthwhile. And it's that will, that will characterize the church throughout eternity. And then uh, in verses 22 and following, John takes us on a tour of the city. He takes us inside. And the first thing we note is that there's no temple in it. For the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. In other words, ritual has become reality. The idea of a central sanctuary was very important in the, in the Old Testament. You couldn't worship anywhere you wanted to. You had to come to Jerusalem because the temple represented the presence of God and His people. But in this city, God's everywhere. You don't have to go looking for Him. You don't have to travel across town to have an audience with the Lord. You don't have to line up in queues uh, blocks long in order to, to share your needs. He's there. He's, a he's available. He's everywhere. Uh, years ago, I heard my father quote a poem about a man who fell into a well, and he fell in head first, and uh, he's, he's afraid that he's dead. And he says, The prayingest prayer I ever prayed, I was standing on my head. And... Uh, that's truth. You see, we can pray anywhere. He's always available to us instantaneously. It doesn't matter what position we're in or wherever we are in the city. He's there. God is there. He's available. And uh, then in verse 23, the city has no need of the sun or of the moon to shine upon it, for the glory of God has illumined it, and its lamp is the Lamb. And the nations shall walk in its light, and the kings of the earth shall bring their glory into it. The city reflects the glory of God. And all of the nations walk by its light and are brought into it. I don't think he here intends us to understand that there will be unbelieving Gentiles in this new city. That's not the point. He's simply going back to the original purpose for God's people, which is to be a light to the nations. Uh, the church, the people of God, will be again will again be reestablished as a as a source of life giving truth to the universe. And uh, lest we think that the presence of Gentiles will defile the city, in verse 27, nothing unclean, and no one who practices abomination and lying shall ever come into it, but only those whose names are written in the Lamb's book of life. There's a register there. And as we approach, uh, the men behind the desk will check the register to see if our name is upon it, and if it is, we will, we will gain access to the city. 
Well, the question is, how do you get in the book? Well, as we've seen through the book, through the book of Revelation, you get into the book by following the Lamb, submitting to Him. And uh, then our name is written in the Lamb's book of, of life. It's just that simple. It's submission to Him. We don't need to make it difficult or cloud the issue. Uh, I heard a story once about uh, a famous theologian from the University of Chicago, Paul Tillich, who so muddied the waters with his uh, teaching approaching the celestial gates. And uh, Peter was standing there. Actually, I, I, you probably notice it's not Peter who guards the gates. It's the angels, much as they guarded uh, access to the uh, Garden of Eden. But... Uh, Dr. Tillich uh, arrived at the gates, and uh, Peter said, uh, in the words of Jesus, Who do you say that, that Jesus is? And Tillich said, uh, Theologically, he is the ground of all being. Existentially, he's the ground of the divine human encounter. And eschatologically, he's the ground of divine hope. To which Peter responded, Huh? But uh, we, don't, you know, we don't need to make it that hard. It's not that difficult. It's just receiving the Lord Jesus as your Savior and Lord. There are really only two philosophies of life. One is assertion. We either are going to do it ourselves and assert our own uh, ourselves, or we're going to submit to Him. And if we submit to Him, He writes our name in the Lamb's Book of Life. And then in chapter 22... Verses 1 through 5, we have a further description of the interior of the city. He showed me a river of the water of life, clear as crystal, coming from the throne of God and of the Lamb. This is parallel to so many of the Old Testament uh, symbolic references to water flowing from the heart of God. Uh, Ezekiel draws that picture in Joel and Zechariah and one of the Psalms, Psalm 46. It's a consistent picture throughout of a source of, uh, that slacks our thirst. What, what are you thirsty for? Well, it's the water of life, ultimately, as Jesus told the woman at the well. This dear woman had been through a number of husbands and was now living with someone who wasn't her husband, and she was desperately trying to find something to fill up her life. And Jesus said, in effect, I'm, I'm what you're looking for. I'm the source of life. If you drink of me, you'll never thirst again. Well, that's the picture here of a river of the water of life. Flowing down the middle of the city, on, e on either side... Uh, of the river was the tree of life. That's a kind of tree, number of trees, bearing 12 kinds of fruit. That is, each month the trees bear fruit, so they're never barren. You can always find fruit when you go to eat. And again, that's simply a picture of God. We can eat and drink of Him. He's our resource. He's our sustenance. He's what we need for life. And that will be true throughout eternity. Hope will become realization. But uh, we'll always act in faith. We'll always be dependent upon Him for life. And in verse 3, we're told there shall no longer be any curse. So the, uh, the results of the curse will be overthrown. The pain of childbearing and child-rearing and, and the thorns and thistles that grow is uh, to frustrate our attempts to find satisfaction in our vocation and sin itself will be eradicated and the throne of God and of the Lamb shall be in it and His bondservant shall serve Him the desire of our heart to serve without the hindrances of the flesh uh, will be fulfilled love wants to serve we'll be able to serve Him fully they shall see His face and see the look of, of love and longing upon it 
and his name shall be on their foreheads. As John says, we shall be like him. We shall bear his character. The name of a person represents what he is. John says, we'll be like him. Peter puts it another way. He says, uh, the God of all grace, after you have suffered a while, will himself perfect and establish and strengthen and settle you. Time's coming when despite our failures and our weakness, struggle and frustration in this life, we're going to be like him. We'll display his character. He, he will see to that. He'll write his name on our foreheads. And there shall no longer be any night, nothing that we need dread or fear. And they shall have no need of the light of a lamp nor of the light of the sun, because the Lord God shall illumine them, and they shall reign forever and ever. There's no hierarchy in heaven. Uh, there are no mayors and underlings. The Lamb is all. The Lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. He, he is the Lord of all. The rest of us reign with Him as kings. Now, isn't that a great thought? Nothing will dominate us. We'll be in control of our environment. I'm sure that's where Lewis gets his idea of the children reigning as kings and queens in, in Narnia. Because that's what, uh, that's what we long for. Someone has said we all suffer the anguish of dethroned kings. There is a memory, a vestigial memory, that we carry with us from the beginning of creation that man was intended for more than, than this. There's got to be something more. We ought to be reigning. And we find ourselves dominated by habits and moods and circumstances and people, and we don't like it because we know there must be something more. But here is the promise that someday we will reign with Him. There is a suggestion in Scripture seen here and there, that um, faithfulness here in some sense qualifies us for a greater sphere of responsibility there. There's no proof, but just the suggestion that uh, because we've been faithful here, we may have the opportunity to reign over some segment of the new creation uh, in the eternal state. Now, that's, um, <laughs> that's John's picture of the new Jerusalem. That's a once-over lightly. And uh, again, the, the purpose or the portrayal of the city in this way is to arouse in us certain feelings, imaginations, longings. He can't really, we can't really do a good job of explaining what it's like with words. We just gild the lily when we do. You almost have to stand and think about these things. And uh, uh, the response that comes is more in terms of imagination and dreams than, uh, uh, than anything else. But for me, the real relevance in this passage is in realizing that what we shall be, we are becoming right now. Try reading through these uh, chapters and think uh, and think of them in terms of what the church is intended to be now. If this is the eternal, exalted state of the church, this is what's happening to us right now. This is what God is producing in us. He's drawing us into conformity, bringing us into conformity to what we shall be. We ought to be a community right now. We need to be exercising our gifts and using our, our abilities and skills and strength and energy to care for one another and minister to each other. That's not my job, primarily, or any of the elders or any one person or group of people. We're a body, and uh, we all have gifts and functions within the body, and we need to be using our gifts. When you come to a meeting like this, don't come merely to receive. 
If you do, you might be disappointed. Preacher may bomb out. It could be a terrible sermon and walk away all disillusioned. But uh, if you come with the idea of serving, you'll never be disappointed. There'll always be someone here who has a need that, uh, that you can meet. So we need to get involved in one another's, idea, uh, one another's lives and counseling and helping and encouraging. Get into a growth group or some small Bible study. Don't be a spectator. God has given every one of you a spiritual gift to be used. No one was behind the door when the spiritual gifts were passed out. You all have at least one, so start using it. And it doesn't even matter what it is. God will show you what it is if you start serving. Just ask God on your way to meetings to uh, make you sensitive to people around you and start reaching out, befriending the lonely and the lost and those that are hurting and bring those on the outside in. And let's learn together to be a loving, giving uh, fellowship of believers. The uh, second thing that I see here is that uh, there is security in the church, and that certainly ought to be true of us. If it's going to be true in eternity, it ought to be true now. Our doors ought to be open to everyone, regardless of their station in life. The stratification of society that exists out there should never exist here. There's really no such thing as a white-collar church or a blue-collar church. It's odd to me that our denominations do actually seem to break down along those lines, but that's, that's not scriptural. We need to be, as Paul puts it, associating with the lowly, those of, of other st uh, on other stations in society. It doesn't make any difference what color or language or background a person has. We need to be open and acceptant toward them. Red and yellow, black and white, they are precious in his sight. They should be precious in our sight. Racism is a sin. I don't know any, any, way else to, any other way to say it. Racism is a sin. It's clearly taught in Scripture. It's wrong to discriminate on the basis of color or ethnic background. It's wrong to discriminate on the basis of station in life. James says if a poor person comes into your assembly and you say, you, you sit down there under the under my feet, and a wealthy person comes in and says, here, you sit on the front row. How can you say the love of Christ dwells in you? Because Christ's love for, died for that man as well as, as others. And incidentally, if God is against minorities, we probably have a problem because we who are in the white portion of the human race will be in the minority in heaven because there are far more of other national groups. So uh, we just need to be open and acceptant toward all people toward those that are beat and sunk and those that have had it, those who can't make it through life. We need to be shockproof and, and willing to listen to them and give help. If you've ever been to an Alcoholics Anonymous meeting, you know that uh, uh, an alcoholic will stand and say, I am an alcoholic and uh, I need help. Well, we're a group of sinners, Anonymous, and uh, we need to be able to stand up in a meeting like this and say, I am uh, a homosexual, or I'm an alcoholic, or I'm full of greed, or pride, or selfish ambition, or I'm a materialist, or I struggle with moodiness, or I'm a big grouch at home, I need help, or whatever. And uh, we need to be a shockproof group of people who can, who can respond with, with love and compassion toward people that are in need. We need to be a refuge for those that are hurting. And uh, third, we need to have beauty of character, as the city does. That's what will attract people, not our building. And Incidentally, we may not even have a building after September. 
that may be a good thing. We just, we're kind of burning our bridges behind us. And we need to realize that uh, stability, our stability is not this building. It's the people of God built upon the foundation that the apostles laid. And uh, certainly our building's not going to attract anyone anyway. It's going to be the people of God behaving like God's people out in the world. And uh, fourth, we have utility, as we will throughout eternity. We have a purpose on the earth. I hope you know what it is. Uh, I hope you know why we're here. The Lord put it very, very clearly when he said we're here to disciple all nations, to win those outside the city, bring them in and nurture them till they grow up to full manhood and womanhood in Christ. That's our purpose. We're not here to feather our nest and gain fame and fortune and popularity and, and have a lot of things, though God may bless us with things all through our life. There's nothing wrong with things, but we shouldn't live for them. The, the, the focus of our life ought to be to disciple, bring men and women under the discipline of, of Jesus Christ. And that's what will give us a great sense of worth, and it's the service that we want to give out of our love for the Lord Jesus. And then finally, we have the same sufficiency that we'll have throughout eternity, and that's the Lord who is available to us. He is the one of whom we uh, continually feed. We eat and drink of Him. As Jesus uh, put it, If any man is thirsty, let him come to me. And drink, he who believes in me. As the Scripture said, from His, that is from Messiah's innermost being, shall flow rivers of living water. What, what do you hunger for? What do you thirst for? Do you need strength for today or tomorrow? That's what He is. Come and believe, He says. Eat and drink, and He'll satisfy us. Now, you may be on the outside of the city looking in. If you are, you can have your name written on the Lamb's Book of Life. All you have to do is submit to the Lamb. He's the Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. He's the Lord Jesus. He's the King of the earth. And if we bend the knee to Him and submit to Him, then our names are written in the book. In John Bunyan's uh, Pilgrim's Progress, he describes uh, Christians standing outside the celestial city, and there's a man there with a pen and a book, and he's writing in it. And he, he's a little hesitant to go in. And he sees a man with a, he says, with a stout countenance who comes to the table and he says, write my name in the book. And the recorder writes his name in the book and he makes his way through the gates of the temple, the gates of the city. And that's all we have to say. Lord Jesus, I want to be yours. Write my name in the book. And then we have access to the city, which means we have resources for life now and for the age to come. Let's stand together. If you've never asked the Lord Jesus to be your Lord, would you do that this morning? Just a simple prayer will suffice. Lord Jesus, I know I need a Savior. Thank you for dying on the cross for me. Come into my life. Make me the kind of person I want to be. Thank you for coming into my life. Just ask Him to come in, and He will. And your name will be written in the Lamb's Book of Life for eternity. That's a book from which no names are ever expunged. They're there forever. Not on the basis of our merits, but on His.
Lord, we thank you for this city, this great uh, defensive, uh, this great defense that we have where there is stability, where nothing can ultimately be shaken that matters, where there is community and warmth and love and acceptance, access by grace. Teach us, Father, to be a, a loving and acceptant group of people, to welcome those that, uh, that are struggling, uh, both the weak and the strong. Keep us from, from judging by face, from prejudging people because of their color or their station in life. Help us to see all as recipients of, of mercy, that none of us is there because of our merit, but because of your, your great love and mercy for us. We only stand on that basis. And use us, Lord, as your instruments to draw many into the city and to encourage their growth to full maturity. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.